One of the uh, passages of scripture that I'm pretty fond of is the, the Beatitudes. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, most likely you are. In, uh, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he goes on, and it's a beautiful passage of scripture. Now, has anybody ever hit the Beatitudes in like a Bible reading plan and just said, I can't go on. I can't keep doing this. Anybody ever done that? (laughs) Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. Now, there's another passage of scripture that can be a little bit more difficult. And they show up periodically uh, here and there. But the the, the longest one, I think, is in the beginning of First Chronicles, where the author goes through and records the, the genealogies, right? And I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. I should have counted these beforehand. Seven, eight, like 12 pages. Just this, is, this person was the son of this person, and this person was the son of this person. And... I'll be very honest with you. I struggle with that when that comes up in in my reading plan. That's that's some hard sledding. You gotta really work to get through that. And the whole time you're thinking, what does this have to do with me? Why does this matter? And and if we're being completely honest about it, who cares? (laughs) I mean, I'll, I'll I'll just be transparent. That thought has come to mind a time or two. What does it really matter? But I, I, I think, especially in what we're going to look at today, we're going to see that, that, there's, that there's a beauty to these genealogies. Because these show God's love and his care towards individual people. Not just the nation of Israel as a whole, not just the church as a whole, but towards individual people and his specific intentions towards his people, his sovereign plan here on this earth. So we've been following John the Baptist and Jesus, two babies who have been both born in, under miraculous circumstances. Uh, and John was the one who would prepare the way for the Lord. Um, he would prepare the way for the Lord. He would be the prophet of the Lord and the one who would point the people towards their Messiah. And then Jesus was the one who was that Messiah. And so last week we saw John, the beginning of John's ministry, where he began preaching this, this baptism for the repentance of sins. Where he said, basically, every one of us is so dirty, so unclean before God because of our sin, that we need to repent and be baptized. And he was preaching this even to the Jewish audiences, who would have looked at this and, and, and said, no, we, we don't need to be baptized. We're, we're God's people. We're the sons of Adam. We're the children of Abraham. We are the children of the covenant. We don't need to be baptized like the Gentiles do. But with, but with the everyday people who looked at their lives and saw their sinfulness, who saw how far short they fell, John's preaching con- created in them conviction and hope the hope that they could have their many sins forgiven. 
It created in them hope for the Messiah that John preached and a hope for deliverance, a hope for restoration, not for the restoration of the nation of Israel, but restoration of the relationship between mankind and our creator. And John was, John was pretty emphatic about one point. Right? He said, I am not the Messiah. I am not him. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, but he's coming. And so you need to be ready. Now we're going to piece together this story a little bit from a few different uh, gospels. So we really see the next piece in, in John 1, starting in verse 29. When he says, the next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he whom, of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John's whole purpose in life his whole purpose in life was to be this giant flashing arrow pointing to Jesus. And all of a sudden, and he's there doing his thing. He's preaching, he's baptizing. And all of a sudden, he sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, that's it. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus comes up to him. And Jesus, the son of God, says, asks John to baptize him. So we're going to jump over to, to Matthew 3 for that little piece of the story. Um, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John says, what are, what are you doing here, Jesus? You don't need this. You don't have any sin that you, need to be, that you need to be forgiven of. But Jesus says, yes, I do need to do this to fulfill everything that, that is required of me. And see, that we talked last week about the Gentiles being baptized into the Jewish faith. Right? This was the start of a new life for them, a new way of relating to God. But in, in addition to that, all throughout the, the Old Testament, we see kind of these uh, proto-baptisms, like almost a baptism, but not quite. There's this pattern that kind of weaves its way through. Um, and, and when we see those, we see some sort of a new dramatic change in how people relate to God, how that relationship between God and his people would work, and an identification of who God's people are. So we see that first sort of proto-baptism in the flood, right? You remember the story of Noah and the ark and the flood? That is, in effect, a, 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 an early baptism where God identifies his people as being the righteous, those who obeyed him, and he punishes the wicked and the sinful to wash away their sin. We see Israel leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. They go through the water of that, that baptism. And when they do that, Israel takes on this new identity as God's children. And then Israel, when they enter the promised land, they cross the Jordan River. They go through the water of baptism, taking on their identity as possessors of the promised land. These were inaugurations of a, of a new people, the identification 
of something new out of what already existed. But what we see here today is not Israel being baptized, but it's Jesus being baptized. This time, Israel didn't need to do anything. Because this new relationship, this new covenant relationship, was going to be accomplished. Everything that needed to be done was going to be done by Christ. So we're going to pick up in, in Luke three twenty one then. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So with the baptism of Jesus, we get this endorsement of the son from the father. It says, you are my beloved son. And I, I can't imagine the encouragement that this would have been to Jesus to to have his to have his nature and his work on this earth confirmed and I, and I suspect that before this point he he knew in some way who he was, who he was and what he was there for but I think that this is this is the point where he knows in full he sees it all. He is the only begotten son of, son of God who has come into this world to redeem it and to save it. But not only does he get that endorsement, not only does, does God say, yes, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, but the Holy Spirit is sent to empower him and to equip him to do the work that his father had given him to do here on this earth. And so we see all three persons of the Trinity acting in one accord. Three persons, one essence, focused and driven towards one end. What is, and, and, and what was that end? Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek, to save the lost. That is the purpose here. So baptism is the start of the unfolding of this next step in the redemption of mankind. And through it, through this baptism, we see the identification of Jesus with mankind. Jesus saying, yes, these are my people. This is what I'm here for. I'm here to seek and to save them. Because he is the son of God. But with his baptism, he is showing to us, he is publicly proclaiming, that he is, identifying, he is identifying himself as the son of man as well. So if we look at um, Romans 6, there's this passage that talks about our baptism. Uh, starting in verse 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in our baptisms, we are identified with Christ. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, who has been set free for sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the big picture there is when we are baptized, when we undertake that, uh, that, that, that gesture, what we are saying is we are publicly aligning ourselves. It's not about me anymore. My life is not about me. It's not for my benefit. It's not for my comfort. My life is 100% wrapped up in Jesus Christ and who he is. That is what baptism does for us. But we, we are identified by our sinful nature, our, our propensity towards sin, as being sons of Adam. See, Adam, in the garden, in that, in that original sin, was acting essentially as, as our head, right? As, as on our behalf, as our representative there. And when he sinned, he sinned on our behalf. And that sin carries through to every son of Adam. Every person born of Adam is born into that sin. He sinned, and by his sin, we who are joined to him are condemned because his sin is our sin. But in our baptism, when we are baptized, we're changing that identification, right? We're saying, I'm not with Adam anymore. I am not a son of Adam anymore. I am a son of God. I am a son, I am with the second Adam. I'm, the better, I'm with the better Adam. I'm with the true Adam. I am with Jesus Christ. And he, Christ, did not sin. And by, because of that, because he is perfect, because he was perfect, we who are joined to him, we who identify with him, are redeemed. And his perfection becomes our perfection. And our baptism is the public proclamation of that, that public statement that we are no longer associated with our sinful selves. We are no longer associated with Adam, but we are associated now permanently with Jesus. But what we see in Christ's baptism then is him taking on our place as the Son of Man so that we might take on his place as the Son of God. It's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so in this moment, Jesus is, is effectively choosing this path. Right? Will, he, will, will he allow the lost, uh, lost, broken, sinful mankind to continue in their sin and rebellion? Will he simply execute just and righteous judgment on us as rebels and traitors? But no, at this moment, he demonstrates his choice that he will not judge us. He will not ignore us, but he will fight for us. He will become our champion. And it's that champion that John speaks of in John 3, 16 and 17. When he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I think that this is why Luke jumps right into this genealogy. Picking up in, in Luke three twenty three. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsai, the son of Nagai, the son of Mahath, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Eldmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matha, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mela, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Selah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphax, Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we've got this great big long list of people establishing that this is the place in human history. These are the people that God has used to bring the Christ, the Redeemer, the Messiah, to this earth. And this is the line of misfits and screw-ups that Christ has chosen here to identify himself with and say, yes, I understand the baggage that these people carry. I understand the sin that they bring. If you know some of these names, you know, you know that these are not the best and the brightest in some cases. But Christ is saying, yes, I will identify myself with them. I will be joined to them. I will be their champion. I will be their Messiah. Despite all of what they bring to the table, I'm with them. And so that line that began with that first Adam, that failure, will begin again with the success of that second Adam, of Jesus Christ. Paul writes this in Romans 5, when he says, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, speaking of Adam, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, because sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned, from Adam to Moses, from Adam to the giving of the law, 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died because of one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one tr trespass, talking about Adam in the garden, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, the sin of Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Adam was a type. He was a pattern for us to be able to see and to recognize Jesus. Now, Adam failed in his temptation in the garden. He chose to follow his own wisdom and his own understanding rather than the way that God had commanded. And through his failure, death and sin spread to all of mankind. But Christ was what Adam failed to be. Christ was the second Adam, the greater Adam, and he is identifying himself here in baptism with the children of that first Adam. I will fight for them. I will become as one of them. I will die as one of them, and through my death and resurrection, I will give to them everything that I have. And he gave to us that free gift of salvation. He gave to us forgiveness of our sins. He gave to us redemption out of the death of our sins. He gave to us justification, right standing before God. He, gave, he is giving to us now sanctification. That work where he cleanses us of our sin. And he will give to us the free gift of glorification. When he returns and we live together with him. In a, cre in a new creation that is free of sin and death. <clears throat> now this was, this was the plan all along. It says in Ephesians 1, I'm just going to read the whole thing. <laughs> in Ephesians 1, uh, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Pay attention to that. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So all of these things, the hope that we have, the blessings that we have, the redemption that we have, the forgiveness that we have, these are not just little gifts that we find on the side of the road, but these are things that are ours in Christ, in him. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a plan from before time to give us these things, but we are given them in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of that plan. And we have them in relationship with him. But in a relationship with him that is so close that there's no longer any distinction or boundary, right? We are in him and he is in us. And so if we have, if you have placed your hope and faith in Christ, then that is because God decided before the foundation of the world that you were going to be found in Christ. Why? We saw it in that passage that I just read. Interspersed throughout it, but it closes with it as well. To the praise of his glory. To the glory of God. The last Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, right? And so you see quotes everywhere, news, Facebook. Well, I assume they're on the news. I don't actually watch the news. But but you see quotes from him everywhere. And one of the ones that kind of stuck with me that I saw, uh, and this is a rough paraphrase, he said, the arc of the universe is long, but it trends towards justice, but it curves towards justice, right? So you you can maintain unjust systems, is what he was saying, but eventually justice will win. As I was thinking about that this week, it occurred to me that that statement doesn't go quite far enough. Right? Because the universe doesn't just curve towards justice, but the entire universe curves to the glory of God. That's what the um, Westminster Shorter Catechism taught, right? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The full purpose of everything that is in existence, the full purpose of your life, the entirety of your life is to bring glory to God. The full purpose of everything that you see around you, the full purpose of the chair that you sit on is the glory of God. The full purpose of the tree that is growing beside the road is the glory of God. The full purpose of everything in this world is for the glory of God. Now, we can give him, as believers, we can give him glory for his love and his mercy and his 
compassion towards us. But he will also get glory from us if we harden our hearts to him and his commands. That's what he said of, of Pharaoh in Exodus 14 when he's telling Moses about the, about the Passover and what was to come. God said to Pharaoh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now in our repentance, when we turn towards God in repentance, we are voluntarily giving him all glory, all praise, and all honor. Or in our rebellion, he will get glory in his triumph over us. But that is not the desire of his heart. His justice, his perfect moral being will not allow those who do evil to go unpunished, but he waits. He waits to dispense that justice because as it, as it says in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Because he desires to show us his love and his mercy and his grace. As it says in, in Romans 5.8, that he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us once we got our act together. He didn't die for us when we had turned to him. It wasn't a deal where, you know, when, when you do your part, I'll do mine, and we'll meet in the middle halfway. But no, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still traitors and rebels against him, while we still hated him, he died for us. That is how much he loves us. And in his love for us, he desires to reveal to us the fullness of all of the treasure of his glory, of his power, of his might and his majesty. And in that place where we are lovingly worshiping him for that, that is where we will find contentment and peace and purpose and fulfillment and joy. And to accomplish all of this, he has become one with us. He has made us one with him. So in his baptism, he identified, he bound himself to us. And in our baptisms, we proclaim that we don't identify with Adam anymore. We are leaving behind our sinful nature. And instead, we are identifying with Christ. And then in the Last Supper, in the upper room, when he took the bread and the cup and, the, and he gave it to them, he said, this is my body, this is my blood, take and eat, take and drink. Make my body and my blood a part of your body and your blood. Become one with me as I am one with you. And it's a oneness. It's a oneness that has no barriers, no secrets, no pretending. Because isn't that what we truly desire? To be loved freely, wildly, unflinchingly, without condition, without fear of loss. Not a human love, not a love that just loves us for our flaws or in spite of our flaws or just kind of pretends that those flaws don't exist, but a love that loves us through our flaws. Not, not just to love us enough to, to cleanse us, but to heal us and to restore us 
from our self-inflicted distress. So at this moment in cosmic history, the Son of God said, yes, I will do that for them. I will love them that way. I will be their champion. I will accomplish this for them. And I will accomplish this in them. And he identifies, he binds himself to us so that in our baptisms, in our communion meals, and in our lives, we identify and bind ourselves to him. It was this spirit that Paul wrote uh, Galatians 2 in when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see Christ in us and us in Christ. But there's something beautiful that happens here when we see that. Because if that is the case, then what is done here What happens here to Jesus at his baptism happens to us as well because we are one with him and he is one with us. So the sending of the spirit that happens here to Jesus happened to all believers starting at the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and carrying forward to today. So the spirit that empowered and equipped Jesus Christ for his work on this earth is the same spirit that equips and empowers you for your life here on this earth and your work here on this earth. It's there to comfort, to guide, to teach us, and to empower us. And then there's also that endorsement from the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So if we are one with Christ, and he is one with us, then those words are not just, you are my beloved Son but you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Not based on what you've done. Because you you have not earned that. You do not deserve that. But rather, it's based on what Jesus did. Because we, when we are one with him, when we have placed ourselves in him, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His blessing is our blessing. His gift is our gift. And so we find in him that we will receive, we we get that affirmation that we couldn't otherwise have. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And speaking as one who is pretty constantly seeking the approval and the affirmation of others and the achievement and success that 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 acknowledges, I can rest, we all can rest in this knowledge that in Christ, regardless of whether or not we meet our own expectations, In Christ, we have met Father's expectations. And he looks at us, and he sees, not the screw-up that I see when I look in the mirror, but he looks at us and he sees Christ. He sees his beloved Son. 
he sees his beloved daughter. Now, if, if church is something that you do, if Jesus is just somebody that you know about, I think, friend, that you're missing out. Because what it is that we are called to here, we are called to place our entire selves, our entire beings in Christ and allow our lives to be filled in turn with Christ. Him in us and we in him. And that's not something that you check off a list. That's not something that you go to and get it done. In the same way, if you say that you are living a life of, of oneness with Christ, if you are claiming that relationship, but your words and your deeds don't bear that out, we need to go back to last week and look at it. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And so if you are one with Christ, you are one with the very best tree that there is. So more and more every day, the fruit that your life bears should look more and more like it comes from Jesus directly. You should look more and more like Christ every day. And this is one of the things that I think is important about the life of the church with one another. Right? That, that what we are called to is not just to come together in the same place, but we are called to live our lives in close enough proximity with one another that we can see that, that we can see the fruit that our lives are bearing, that you can see the fruit that my life is bearing, and I can see the fruit that your life is bearing. So that when you're bearing bad fruit or when I'm bearing bad fruit, we can call each other out on it and say, listen, you said, you have said, you have affirmed that you're a good tree. There's bad fruit here. So let's prune it out. Let's cut it out. And alternatively, when we are seeing our own failures and our own shortcomings too clearly, when we're crushed by the weight of where we've fallen short, then we have the body of Christ. We have each other to bear one another up say, yeah, you may have fallen. Yeah, you messed up here. But listen, Jesus is good. And Jesus is bigger than that. And he is accomplishing something in you. And within that relationship, within this body, we are called to oneness as well. Because if you are in Christ, you are one with Christ, and I am one with Christ, then we have to be one with each other. There's no way that that, that that can happen otherwise. Now, the things of this world will try and divide us. will try and keep us apart from one another. will try and keep us separated. But if we are truly united in Christ, then we are bound together by something stronger, something that is greater than any division that this world can raise against us. I want to close <clears throat> John 17. 
This is, a, this is the, uh, what's known as the high priestly prayer, where Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those, for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are in one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, we... Father, we rejoice in the love that you have given us in Christ. And Father, I pray that whatever pieces of me are clinging to that old man, whatever pieces of me are clinging to, to my flesh, whatever pieces of me are, are clinging to that, to Adam, that sinful nature. Father, I pray that, that you would be cutting those loose even now. God, that I would be unreservedly, wholly, and completely found in you. Father, that I might be able to hear those words. You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, I know, I know that my life will never be will never be filled with satisfaction, will never be filled with meaning and purpose until I hear those words. So, Father, I long for that day. I long for that work to be completed in me. And I pray that you would be doing that work in me, that you would be doing that work in every one of us so that we would be a people whose hearts are prepared for you, Father. We ask that that you would be doing that work in us and through us faithfully every day, Father, until our last breath or until that bright light shines. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our soon coming Lord, that we pray. Amen.